Welcome to CouncilCast, a new podcast series from the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers. We're excited about this today, and I want to introduce our guest, Natalie Holder, an employment lawyer and author of Exclusion, Strategies for Increasing Diversity in Recruitment, Retention, and Promotion, which explores how subtle biases interferes with engaging employees and innovating in the workplace. Natalie's here to talk about how micro-inequities and implicit biases inadvertently erode the confidence of rising leaders, costing companies millions of dollars each year. She'll also share her insights on how a company's ability to recruit top talent increases dramatically when it improves its inclusive workplace culture. So Natalie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ken. So Natalie, let's let me hit off with the, the my first question. You know, the issue of diversity inclusion is an issue that, in my lifetime, I feel like I've heard about it all my life since the '60s when it when it all erupted. Why are we still talking about this? What what is why haven't we seen the kind of changes that we need? I think that's a great uh, way to start this conversation and that why are we still talking about diversity in the year 2016? The reason why is that many of us still engage in behaviors that are unconsciously biased toward other groups. Um, As human beings, we have a natural affinity toward that which is familiar and safe. That's the way in which our minds were engineered to protect us from the earliest days to now. And so the way in which we're noticing unconscious bias in today's workplaces is that we're still hiring people who look like us. We're still choosing the people to work in groups and work on better projects who remind us of our children or remind us of ourselves when we were younger. And so until we start chipping away at how we interact with others and how we actually think about others, we're still going to be talking about diversity. And I think now the conversation is more so about inclusion and diversity and equity. Inclusion really is that next layer of making sure that people not only are invited to an organization, but feel the ability to engage in the organization. It's useless to engage in a very aggressive diversity campaign where you're recruiting people of all different backgrounds. But then once the people of all different backgrounds gets to your organization, they find that there are limited abilities for them to traverse the organization as their other colleagues would. So does this this whole issue sort of over time as we go forward, slightly disappear. And I'm really reflecting on the fact that, you know, I have a son in a classroom um, in a public school. And in that public school, some 40 languages are spoken. And he has friends named David and Bogdan. And, and he doesn't see anything. And he's Asian. Um, so is, does, does it, you know, do, as we go forward, does this all, those inferences disappear? or are they learned later? So there is some really great research um, coming out of the world of neuroscience that shows us how our brains are working. Many people often feel that children don't see race or color or gender, but studies show that from the time of infancy, we can recognize different faces, we can recognize different colors. Um, And so I always challenge when people say that their children don't see race, color, or any other difference, I I question that. And to see those differences doesn't mean that it's a wrong thing. It's actually something to be celebrated that we do see our differences. I don't think any one of us wants to have our identities in any way eliminated. The question is, are we now going to put up barriers in the way of someone because we're seeing an identity that feels or seems different to ours, that feels uncomfortable? 
I think that with time and with exposure, that's where we'll see a change. I think that our country has done a great job in the last um, you know, 50 years since the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act in making sure that there have been better opportunities for women, people of color, people with disabilities, the LGBT community, and a host of other uh, demographic groups. However, it's a continuum, not a destination. It's going to continue to challenge us when we think about inclusion and what it takes for us to make sure that everyone has an equal seat at the table. But once again, it's something that we have to continue working on and be conscious of. So I, you know, a lot of my work has been around shaking the unconscious awake to make sure that we are you know, making decisions that truly are fair and equitable. So if there were, if, if someone's listening to this podcast and we wanna make sure that they come away with one or two sort of real things that they can do. I, I, we tend to talk a lot, but what, what if, if I woke up tomorrow morning as an executive and I really am committed to doing something, what should I do? So you have the large grand scale programs, which of course I think require a lot of money and effort and resources. But if I were an executive and I really wanted to see change take place in my organization, I'd have to understand that, that it starts with me. As they always say, you know, um, a fish stinks from the head. So if the organizational head is not the one who's leading the effort and is not exhibiting best behaviors, no one else is going to. So that executive could do something as simple as taking out a different group of individuals to lunch. During one of my trainings, I had a senior executive within, um, or senior leader within a government agency who realized that he wasn't including different people in his lunch or coffee outings. And those people who weren't included were people who he did not deem as stars. And he realized he might have been creating a self-fulfilling prophecy because he didn't think they were stars, therefore they weren't stars. And he said, I need to reset the clock with some of these people and start diversifying the groups of people who I engage with. So as an executive, it's really And simple. is the return there? Absolutely, because if you've invested in recruiting someone, you obviously saw talent and capability. The more time that goes by that that talent and capability is not tapped and is not in any way um, exercised, that individual most likely has already left the organization even though they're still sitting in their seat. So one of the worst feelings is to feel as though an organization pulled you in but is not doing anything with you. As that senior executive, you can stop by someone's desk, ask them how their day is going, ask them do they want to sit and meet and find out how um, their work is going, find out where they need to be um, in terms of resources and training in order to get to where they want to go in the organization. Oftentimes when people find that they're invested in, or that someone's investing in their uh, skills and capabilities in their future, they often feel loyalty and the loyalty that stays or gets them to stay and helps them to advance within the organization. And more importantly, helps them to create wonderful solutions for the organization. So as you, in your work, have you seen a distinct difference between sizes of organizations and structures? And the reason I raise that is, um, you know, it's one thing to be American Express and to have a, you know, a diversity and inclusion program that costs you whatever and you, you drive it differently. Uh, we tend to work with more people who are not small firms, and I, but these are large firms, have you know a thousand, two thousand employees, but they are more entrepreneurial, and the spirit is entrepreneurial, and so there tends to be 
an inclusion of people, the like kind, I call it the like kind thing. I mean, you look at any of our uh, gatherings and you can tell, I mean, there's an energy around it. Um, how do you break that down? How do you, how do you go after that? I think one of the best examples I can think of that would be similar to what you're describing is, you know, um, looking back at one of the law firms I worked for, we were a small law firm uh, in comparison to your big New York City law firms that have hundreds of people. And what made us successful in the area of increasing diversity was that there was commitment. And I think that without commitment, whether you're large or small, it's not going to happen. Of course, your large organizations, uh, your you know, multi-billion dollar corporations are able to throw more resources at this initiative. But once again, if there's no commitment, it's not going to happen. So my former firm was really good at making sure that we had women and people of color and people with disabilities in a number of different leadership positions. And I must say, we were on par with some of the bigger firms that weren't able to accomplish those same goals. So, I mean, I love the commitment idea, but I'm wondering whether there isn't still an underlying, uh, especially when it comes to race, uh, sort of, a, there's a racial dialogue that just doesn't happen. And, and I'm not sure whether um, that's just my own self self-awareness, uh, but how do you get to that? How, how do you move that issue along? Because to me, that's the underlying piece that holds back everything. Right, and so I think that as an organization, if you are looking at advancing, let's say, race as a dimension of diversity, then you really do have to figure out how does that align with your business? I think many times in these conversations around diversity and inclusion, it's not tied to a business initiative. And so therefore, it's not something that is seen as valuable, and it's not something that the executive leadership will necessarily um, support on a long-term basis. It's a feel-good um, you know, flavor of the month event. But I've noticed that in organizations and where they've been able to show that there is a return on investment for investing in conversations around race, gender, national origin, LGBT status, and so on, that those organizations do not allow diversity to fall off the, the shelf. In fact, they are looking at that as a part of their line item discussions. Uh, for instance, many organizations have moved from having affinity groups as a good example, because they realize, sure, having the group that focuses on one demographic that holds a party or an event or you know, an event-oriented uh, initiative, that's great when times are good. But as we saw, when times were bad in 2008, many of those diversity initiatives got slashed. However, the organizations that moved you know, from affinity groups to employee resource groups, now that was where those groups were able to show that there was a huge return on investment. They saved companies from launching products and services that didn't work in different markets because they were subject matter experts on their own markets. You know, oftentimes we're subject matter experts on our own culture. Sure. So these ERGs, employee resource groups, were able to speak with authority and with experience within what's going to work in their demographic group in terms of the marketplace. So that's just one example of how organizations that A, are committed, and B, see the value of how diversity and inclusion adds to their bottom line are able to accomplish those goals. So to sort of steer the conversation slightly different, but again, asking for sort of a simple answer to a complex question. Um, gender in this industry 
among the brokerage industry is has been a challenge. Um, I, and I think probably true in financial services across the board anyway. I mean, uh, the larger corporations, I think, tend to have more women and women executives. Um, but at that entrepreneurial sort of brokerage level, um, there are women in the senior management teams, but they're not women running these firms. How do you get there? How do you, how, is, it, is it just an incremental, you know, you kind of chip away at it? Or is there, is there a, a real initiative that needs to be taken? It starts with the cycle of looking at recruitment, retention, and then promotion. And so my first question would be, where are you sourcing your talent? Where are you finding new people to you know, enter your organization? And based on that mm -hmm. answer, if you're noticing that it's nepotism, if you're noticing that it's um, you know, hiring someone's friend or only seeking referrals from people who are within your circles, then that answers a huge question as to why you're going to have the same old, same old coming into your organization. Let's say you do break that barrier and you say, well, we're going to start sourcing from looking at different professional trade organizations that focus on women and um, gender issues. Once those people are in the organization, what have you done to your culture to make sure that it's welcoming to women? What have you done to your norms and the history of what makes you an organization to make sure that women don't feel uncomfortable in those environments? Are you still hosting you know, uh, golf or uh, sports-oriented events only for men? You know, is that something that your organization extols and therefore is not willing to change? Because if they're not willing to change those customs, most likely they're going to not be able to retain those women and promote them. So it really takes a strong look at, once again, how you're doing business and how you can possibly interrupt some of the practices that have been preventing you from attracting that demographic you're looking to work with. So to sort of bring it all together, um, talk to me a little bit about, tell me the story about a firm or an example of a company that you think gets it right, that does it and has seen the return, the return that, that you would want and you'd expect, both in a, in a generic sort of in a profitability way, but rather across the board. So I've, I've had the pleasure of working with a number of different corporations within the government, uh, believe it or not, and uh, law firms that have done a great job of moving further along the continuum. When we started working together in 2005, they may have only um, been at the area where they felt comfortable purchasing tickets to an event that supported a particular demographic group. Um, but I think that now many of those organizations have expanded their definition of diversity and are really looking at not just demographic, but they're also looking at cognitive diversity. They're also looking at experiential diversity. And without naming any names, when I think of the organizations that are doing it right, I look at what products and services are they putting out on the markets. I also look at what sort of recognitions are they getting. Not saying that recognitions are the end-all be-all of whether or not an organization is successfully advancing diversity, but those surveys and studies really tell a lot about whether or not people enjoy working in those environments and whether or not um, people who are historically underrepresented really enjoy working in those environments. Um, and, you know, and lastly, I also look at whether or not these are organizations that are constantly winding up within the EEOC's repertory. Um, so you know, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission looks at um, 
charges of discrimination and harassment within our workplaces. Not to say that if you wind up on a best practices list that you're not going to wind up at the EEOC, but you see some repeat offenders mm -hmm. and it really makes you scratch your head and wonder why. And so the reputation of these organizations that haven't been able to advance diversity and inclusion, that impacts their ability to recruit, retain, and promote. And so when I see an organization that's doing it right, oftentimes they have one of the best reputations on the market for people of all different backgrounds. Well, Natalie, um, I really appreciate that. I appreciate your insights today. I hope we've moved the dialogue along a little bit uh, in our discussion, and I hope we can invite you back again to, to talk some more about diversity and inclusion and uh, good places to work and fun places to work. So thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ken. It's been my pleasure.